Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, good whomever, my fine feathered friends. May you be in good fettle and fine form. Well, this is part one of a two-part podcast, purely really for technological, technical reasons, um, in that the file is too large to render for my podcast provider. Um, At two hours, you can probably watch, well, not probably, you can watch the full YouTube conversation, because um, I'll post that all in one go. Wouldn't be, wouldn't make sense to divide that in two. But for a podcast, it has to be divided in two. So this is part one of a chat with Josh Barnett, who appeared last year. You should know Josh from the Joe Rogan show, all sorts of other things. He's a MMA fighter. He's a metal fan, a thoughtful motherfucker, all those kind of things. So this will be part one of a two-part chat with Josh. Um, follow me on patreon.com, Alan Averill, if you want to support the show. Go over there. I post um, demos, rehearsals, other bonus content, various other podcasts, this kind of thing, that kind of thing. Discussions on books, all sorts of stuff. Go and have a look. Um, you can go to hatecouture616.com. Hateful yet tasteful apparel, some horrible, grimy, gloomy, evil clothing. Over there, you put in the promo code ALAN and you get free shipping. All sorts of crazy stuff. Go over and have a look. And www.metalblade.com in North America. If you put the promo code AA Podcast, you'll get free. Well, you'll get 10% off. So go over there if you're going to buy the new Cannibal Corpse, some old bolt thrower, some this, some that, the other, some primordial, etc., etc. All right, here you go. Part one, Josh Barnett. 
We've got two two shows that we've done. It'll air the 13th. Another show will air the 20th. There's a real big push right now to try and promote that as much as possible. Um, and then, uh, what's the best way to put it? Well, trying to shore up like different project things. So I'm involved with my whiskey distillery. That's constant. And there's things going to always, always happening over there. Plans for possibly a beer. Um, also, people want me to do a podcast, but I'm really reticent about the whole thing because everyone just thinks like, well, oh, I just go on there and talk. I'm like, you know, you gotta, you gotta study. You gotta, you know, you have to, it takes a lot to want to get out there uh, with a fully formed, researched, well argued for opinion before you even get to the point of telling the rest of the world about it. And so, plus most of the time they want me to talk about shit that I don't care about. So <laughs> I don't, <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Um, and just personal stuff, like even if things aren't going on in the way that we normally would, I mean, there's, I've sold a lot of things out of my garage just during this whole pandemic period, because we're always carrying around all kinds of stuff with us that we don't really need. Yeah. And I prefer to, to, you know, put it back out there in the world so someone else can have it. Yeah, that seems to be a sort of a, a theme with a lot of people that I'm talking to lately. They're talking to me about how they're just getting rid of their stuff, like their baggage, because they're anticipating me. I mean, when all this started, um, it's been a few months since I spoke to you, but when all this started, I said to myself and my friends, I said uh, in my head, if this is still rolling on St. Patrick's Day 2021, uh, like a little alarm bell is going to go, you need to try and get the fuck out of here. But of course, you've been here. It's just like thousands of fucking records and guitars and crap. Yes. I just thought to myself, I was talking to my mate comedian, Jason Rouse, and he was just like, dude, you have the bad, you know, you haven't got kids or family or this, the theater, mm-hmm. but you need to just like find somewhere to put your stuff <clears throat> and put your stuff <clears throat> in the bag to be able to make your podcast and yeah. go because um, try and move around a little bit because it may be that where you're living, I mean, here might and this might just end up going on and on and maybe it would be advantageous to not have so much baggage because we accumulate so much stuff you know yeah no we do and you know you have to start to sit back and think and and go through your own little mental database there and think like well what 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 do i really need what do i want and then you know, okay, what, where is that, that weight of value and how much does it carry? And, you know, so with books, I will reduce that to a degree, but that, that never becomes anything less than like 13 boxes full because honestly, I look at things like books as the kind of things that, okay, well, there needs to, everybody needs to be at least a a miniature library of, of Alexandria at some point, because one, everything's becoming digitized. I don't want this to become rollerball where, you go to the computer to ask about the corporate wars and it just freaks out and says it's not there anymore and whatever. It's like, no, I, I need to keep uh, these books, be they fiction or nonfiction around. Uh, I want to be able to pass them down to, to yeah. you know, my kids or what have you so that they have the same access to this knowledge as I did. Yeah, I mean, I have, to be honest, the, uh, I have about half as many t-shirts as I used to. In fact, there's only mm-hmm. about 30% of them. I used to have hundreds more. Vin- or vinyl's okay, but CDs are useless. They're just taking up space. I used to have about a thousand cassettes back in the day in the late eighties, mm. late eighties, early nineties. But um, they were they've been sort of lost on, on in route between different houses in Dublin. 
But the amount of stuff I would have had if I'd had everything, you wouldn't have even been able to see the wall space yeah. here. Um, and it yeah it does feel like, uh, you know, maybe I could do with... Um, my parents said to me, you know what you should do is buy a garden shed, insulate it, put all your stuff in the garden shed, and then leave it there. I think what they didn't say is, um, I think what they didn't say is, and then we can set it on fire. <laughs> yeah, quite quite possibly, right? Yeah. Uh, some, but uh, it is kind of a clever idea, and I'm lucky enough that I have a garage where I'm at that I can use for one of my cars and for some of my, a good portion of my stuff. I do my workouts in there, but, uh, you know, even then, I'll, I'll, I reduced three boxes of car part stuff to one and like a few little miniature boxes. And so every time I can go through these things, if I can find stuff that is legitimate trash or things that I can, uh, that I would say are donation worthy. Yeah, I'll do it. But ultimately I have a lot of things that have value. So I just put them on the market and let people pay for them and I win, they win and everybody's happy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I know Jason too. Uh, I'll see him. I'd see him around, especially at like because uh, we met at a Marduk show a long time ago. Oh, yeah. He's buddies with those guys, and so am I. And so uh, I would see him around there. I'd see him at the comedy store sometimes. So yeah, yeah, he's actually friends with them because of me. He was playing in Sweden, and me and uh, Daniel went down to see them. Yeah, he's one of those sort of old kind of heavy metal comedian guys who was kind of floating around Europe around the same time as Steve Hughes and a bunch of other comedians. And I think uh, he's gone to Austin, Texas, which a lot of comedy people seem to be going to. I mean, his, his stories about what he was doing, I was talking to him last week and he said to me that, he's just like, man, do you remember the last time we met on the Sunset Strip a couple of years ago? He just said to me, you want to see it now? It's unrecognizable. It's just none of those things are going to open the same way. Yeah, no, not likely. And, uh, you know, as things... <clears throat> as things progress into certain directions that as they, as those directions get more and more people embedded in that, that mode of action, how do you then reverse it? So with the insane amounts of just trash and uh, little uh, Island camps all over Hollywood and LA right now of homeless people, yeah. what are you going to do when you supposedly say everything's up and running again, everything is, is a okay. Yeah how do you take care of that? You know, people have now been readjusting and just doing all kinds of shit differently. And now you're going to just immediately just put the hammer down and, and change it. Well, I mean, we know how that goes in modern society as it is. I mean, he you said, know, I mean, uh, if it's not going to be just simply, well, people are going to get pissed. Uh, activists are going to use it as a reason for existence. And yeah. then, you know, it's just going to become a giant shit show. And at the end of the day, the people that are homeless, are still not helped. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, welcome he, to LA. Yeah, he said the homelessness. I mean, I noticed it the last time I was there. I drove, it was maybe three years ago, we drove down through somewhere near downtown to get to somewhere else. And it was staggering going down that sort of strip with just only tens of people. And you thought to me, you said, mm -hmm. how the fuck can this be happening in a, a first world country? It just seemed absolutely insane. Um, and he just said that all of Sunset is now just kind of like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of streets around where I'm at where now there are like habitations completely built out down the blocks. And uh, if you drive by this Goodwill in Hollywood, it, it's like this makeshift uh, beggar souks, I guess you could call them. If people yeah. are familiar with the souks as the, the, the markets and yeah, uh, it's, it's crazy. 
So if you go to drop something off, I mean, they're like, hey, hey, I'll take that if they want to. I mean, they're like looking for stuff. I, I, to, to be honest, I, I suppose you could try and, you know, be an industrious person and, and sell some of that stuff. But sometimes you just see these folks and they just end up with these collections of piles and piles and piles of just refuse. of just trash, it looks like. And, and you just go, well, what do you what could you even do with that? I mean, or more than likely, this person probably isn't even in their right mind. And so allowing them to just compile from off the sidewalks as much detritus as possible and flotsam and jetsam, even though we're not at water, uh, <laughs> doesn't really seem like you're doing that person a favor. I mean, maybe, it, maybe it's even at least driven by the innate want to have a job of some sort, right? Like to have something to do, but yeah. I don't know. I think there's gotta be something better. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's happening in Dublin as well on a small scale, but that's where it starts is that down at the end of the road here, you have the canal which runs down, uh, down um, sort of not quite the center of Dublin, but the Grand Canal. And there is now, when you know, if you run up and down the canal, a few dozen tents and it grows by two or three every few days. And slowly we're beginning to get our own little tent city along the mm. canal. And it's, um, it's very strange that uh, I don't really notice much discussion about it or obviously the terms of this sort of lockdown and people losing their jobs is going to eventually push X amount of people out from not being able to pay the rent and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But it seems staggering in um, the center of a first world city that this just keeps on slowly, slowly growing. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be much, I mean, I suppose in, in LA or California, it just seems to be such, the percentage or the numbers I was reading are just like tens of thousands, if not more than that, of people. Well, you know, the person that gets pushed out <clears throat> via uh, unemployment, uh, besides uh, somehow picking up a crippling addiction, I don't see them as the kind of folks that are going to be stuck in that situation uh, mm -hmm. permanently or even for that long of a time out of the rest of the, their life. Uh, most people at least know someone, right? They have friends, they have family, they have something at least that they can, and they have obviously some sort of set of skills or they could find a way to create some sort of employment uh, either by doing day labor or other things. Uh, but most of the time when you come across the, what you would consider the perpetual homeless, it's usually folks that are, you know, they're mentally sick. They are schizophrenic, they're, they're bipolar, there's something, and they probably, and, and they usually have some sort of massive uh, drug addiction, which could be uh, due to being schizophrenic too, and so they don't have access to medication, so what are you going to do? You're going to take drugs, you're going to drink heavily, you're going to do these sort of things, and of course those things are cumulative effects, yeah. uh, or, you know, something they picked up along the way, you know, being in a very despairing situation. I mean, it is just the human condition in and of itself, but uh to you know what do you what do you do about that i mean nobody well one there's no the money nor the will to want to actually do what's necessary it's it's like everything in western politics you see a problem starting to form and you just let it you just let that thing grow until it's a massive field and then you say oh well now it's too expensive and and too touchy to deal with it because if you were to you know you, you let it get so bad that you literally have to be totalitarian in a way to, to like you have to like oh no no buck stops here and make like a uh, a deliberate and and black and white shift on something 
And then it would, of course, again, takes a huge monetary expense to make happen. So let's say with the homeless, if you were to say, create a camp situation, you round all the homeless up, you get them up off the streets and you say, okay, well, you can't be homeless for a variety of reasons in, you know, dense metro areas, because for one, it's unhealthy, not just to you, but to the populace, because you're not going to get the proper medications uh, as need be or care. So there are potential for super viruses to be built within these things. We, you have uh, issues of trash and refuse, not to mention bio waste from human beings and yeah. the increase of rat populations. And, you know, you, now all of a sudden potential things like typhoid start to become a problem again, oh, yeah. or potentially even black plague. So this makes sense. Like, it's just not, it's not healthy, not yeah. to mention having people that are not in their right mind, on the streets with normal everyday citizens, there's, of course, lots of stuff you can go look up from really unpleasant encounters between the two at times. And so you say, all right, well, you can't, this doesn't work. So you got to stay in this camp. However, part of this camp is you get psychiatric treatment, you get the medications you need. Basically, the idea is like, get this person to the point where they can make their own rational decisions. And so that they can get more get get to a place again where they feel like they're their whole self and so they have a they can make the decisions that they want to make and then i would say you know while these people you're giving them somewhere to sleep and eat and be cleaned i mean god just someone being able to have a shower is it's got to be a, a real benefit and then you have a work component to it for let's say cleanup and beautification of the city which i know seems someone might think of that as so uh i don't know uh uh, shallow in a sense, but it's like, no, people want to live in a place that looks nice, that has order to it, that has some some sort of aesthetic that's got, you know, just random graffiti and tags and trash and garbage and things all screwed up. Nobody likes that. And it creates a it, it creates a chaotic environment and a chaotic response in it and it's populace. I mean, there's plenty of things that can it can show you the the detriment of having your environment around you in complete chaos and 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 trash. You know, if you if you see the effects, I mean, the broken window concept of if you just uh, you see one broken window and you see tagging and destruction and what have you, then people are like, well, this thing must have no value. It's not worth respecting. Well, why would I respect it? Yeah. And it's a simple thing, but this would at least get people out doing something. You could give them some sort of a, a some sort of wage for it. And then, you know, the state's got um, uh, credit bureau or credit. Uh, credit unions well then they can get accounts and they can build themselves back up into a place where they could then decide all right well this is what i want to do with my life because now i i have medication i have this i have that but of course that's a massive expense and then maybe even more so than the expense because our california is the sixth largest economy or something in the world yeah uh i think it's the fact of the minute you literally round up every homeless person off the street, even if it's to try and, you know, put them in a place to, to allow them to get their, their life back together or to, to have some appropriate treatment, everyone will just flip the hell out. And it's like, you know, it'll just be protests and activists and all this, because to be honest, even beyond the fact that there are folks that are so ideologically driven that they have no ability to, to look at things um, from a, uh, a viewpoint that that really is based in sort of any sort of rational position, but there are also those that know that using ideological positions is a way to have a job, 
You know what I mean? Like if, yeah. if, if homelessness doesn't exist, well, then maybe this bureau doesn't exist and I don't get paid. Or if homelessness doesn't exist, let's say, uh, then I don't have an activist cause where I can pay myself six figures and then leverage it against other people. And all this power I've now uh, um, uh, co-opted for myself based back on the suffering of other people no longer, you know, and, and, you know, I feel like perhaps maybe not all of them are that cynical and, 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 uh, um, uh, what would you call it? Machiavellian, but maybe, uh, maybe they are the, the C.S. Lewis quote of like, you know, um, oh, like never, you, you know, what's, uh, always fear the tyranny of the good because they'll, they'll never stop doing it because they think they're in the right basically. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I, I think about, um, saying in a city like Dublin, when you try and explain um, to people from other European cities and that there's a huge um, class divide and there's a huge percentage of working class areas and that most people in Dublin's prisons, for example, are from four postcodes. And within mm. those four postcodes, if you were to go from, um, let's say, a rich, wealthy part of Dublin to one of those, it would almost seem like, you know, you're going from through first to second to third world, almost, mm -hmm. especially in the 1980s and the 1990s. But um, imbuing people with a sense of civic responsibility uh, towards those areas was very difficult because they felt so um, there was a sort of there was a, a welfare uh, cycle that they were going through for generations and of course in, immense joblessness and um, emigration and all that kind of thing mm -hmm. and, drug, and heroin in the 1980s but the idea of trying to imbue people with a sense of civic responsibility that isn't attached to either um, left or right political axis is quite difficult when they feel like they've fallen through the system. But I suppose, yeah, yeah. I suppose in America that what adds to that is the, the lack of a, a healthcare system the same way as here, which here doesn't quite allow for quite as many people to fall through the system. Um, but also hard to it, say. Hard to I say. Um, it, it, it's my view from the outside. I'm not quite sure because I always hear Americans say, oh, healthcare is a socialist or idea for something. And then you say, well, it was in Bismarck's Germany. It's not really a socialist idea. No, no, it's not. Healthcare in and of itself is not socialist. Social programs are not socialist. Yeah. Uh, I would personally love to see uh, a national healthcare alongside a private healthcare, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I am I am not the person that says, well, if you have more money, does that mean you should be able to get better care? It's like, well... Yeah. When, yeah, I, I, I guess that's that can be one of the things with it, but I'd like it so that nobody at least is not is one illness or injury away from being bankrupted. I mean, I think that's ridiculous, especially yeah, yeah. when I think we could have some capabilities uh, to prevent that, although it, you can't save everybody, people that that's, you know, take your ideological nonsense and just fucking throw it up, throw it in the trash because you can't save everyone. You can't fix everyone. Not everyone's going to have a happy life. Not everyone's going to always be able to bounce back. I, I, I don't know why that is, but it is just the way it is. Like it, it's, it's, that's it is just the case. And, uh, but you can, you can try to minimize that at best. Mind you, I'm not a utilitarian. So, you know, okay. I'm not, I'm not suckling from the teat of Jeremy Bentham, although I do own on Liberty. And I think John, John Stuart Mill is brilliant and he has some amazingly brilliant things to say. I'm not a utilitarian. I'm not going to get with, nine other people to vote which one of you should die i'm not going to yeah. do that but um but i think that a national health care would be useful i think that um with the us i mean 
well, even when you, when you talk about things of, of these, these natures with, with class and what have you, I mean, it's one of, the, one of the simplest things, but difficult to do is to try and just create ways for people to have respect for themselves and respect for their communities and, and some unifying aspect to it. Like we're so itemized or atomized and disparate that you can watch the difference over even less than a hundred years, you know, watch something from the fifties and see where everybody knows the mailman, you know, you have milkman, you whatever, right. You just, the people you are involved with in your day to day is a part of your overall arching, uh, your overarching com community of sorts. And everybody's got their small little communities and their greater community at large. And obviously not everybody agrees about everything all the time, uh, but, but you just, you had personal interaction which changes hundred percent changes the way that you see the world and you see the people around you. Yet nowadays, everything is seemingly reduced to an app, right? Like why learn to cook when you can just order your food on an app? Why, you know, why do this? Well, that's why people think that, you know, you'll own nothing and like it is somehow and be happy is somehow uh, a, a capable thing. And to me, it's an anthem for human flourishing. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work. And it's the same with not being able, one, being disparate. And so, so atomized that you don't even know your neighbors. You don't know anyone around you. You're living in your own little cave uh, for your own little things. Yeah. And you, you don't ne'er the two shall meet. Uh, also, it will keep you from even wanting to clean up your neighborhood. You know, I pick up trash when I go out and about because I just, it's not about what, what how it makes me feel or that somehow makes me a good person. It's just that everybody else has to live here too. Yeah. And perhaps maybe if someone saw me do it, they would do it themselves. Or perhaps if the trash isn't there, no one, other people wouldn't want to throw it on the floor. Yeah, you I, mean, know? I mean, it's just, it, it's such a simple, stupid thing. Yeah, that's the tragedy of the commons, isn't it? That idea that um, there are always people who benefit from the actions of others when they do nothing. Who get people who clean up the commons or the tragedy of the mm -hmm. common um, land that's, you know, that everybody uses. Um, that there's always people who benefit from the intense labor of others. But I, I from the outside from, of America looking in, um, we don't really understand why, well, I don't really understand the intense opposition to Obamacare, for example. Now, I didn't mm -hmm. know enough about it, but to, to Europeans, that seemed to be quite um, uh, a reasonable concept to try and give people health care. Yeah, but, it's kind of a who, racket. But who, yeah, but who's, who, oh, I mean, what isn't a racket in, 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 right, a, yeah. Yeah, in the States, but who, how, what really scuppered that? Was that big pharma scuppering that, scuppering that? Because, uh, because one of the, I, I don't, it's ideological the, for one side. Yeah. One thing I noticed though, is that you can be a doctor, for example, in as European countries and um, get paid the same, regardless of who you treat, I would say. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the States to make the big bucks, you've got to sort of alienate yourself out of treating, I suppose, maybe normal working class people who are on state benefits. Now, I'm not sure if well, that's I think I think you, you, yeah, I mean, there could be that, right? There's uh, people love insurance claim stuff, you mm -hmm. know, often. Uh, so they'll, they'll love to get people in on that kind of thing. Uh, but then I imagine, yeah, I could easily see that there's, if there's state limit uh, decided things. And so maybe doctors wouldn't want to mess with it. Um, I think that all, all, healthcare uh, people have to treat anyone that comes to them. So there, there, there's this idea that somehow, oh, you don't have enough money. Well, I'm not going to treat you. It's like, no, it's, it's not exactly like that. They have to treat you. Now, that being said, they then might 
you know, that whole treatment might put you in some insane debt, yeah. which is ridiculous. But um, it, it is, it's a weird, confusing system. Uh, what scuppered Obamacare? One, I think it was ideological, so left, right, divide stuff. Two, it may have been. Uh, I mean, he was trying to push it through the Senate, right? Which was which was um, a Republican Senate, maybe, or am I? Prosper? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was originally Romney's idea. To be honest, it was a Republican concept. I mean, uh, at least Republican from party. Like, I don't, you know, uh, for anyone watching, I have zero political affiliations. I do not support either the Democrats or the Republicans, nor the Libertarians. I'm not for any of them. We're not, I'm not on your side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so don't come to me. Yeah. I'm not about your, your fucking shallow idiot level takes on what you think government and politics are. Most people have zero understanding, in my opinion, of, of really the, the history and the philosophy of politics at large. So I don't want to get into it. But uh, but when it comes to that whole Obamacare thing, um, I mean, for one, I'm sure in a lot of ways it was there was an inefficiency level due to it just being done by our government <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. or any Western government, to be perfectly honest. Like it seems to be absolutely impotent towards doing anything with any real efficiency and effectiveness. But um, I would say my personal now, I didn't hate Obamacare. But what I what I hated was the underlying element that was just ignored. And I hated that Obamacare was seen as a Band-Aid over the top of it, like, oh, well, that's all done. It's like, no, actually, you haven't solved the problem. You just made it. You just forced everyone to get insurance. And some people got the ass end of the deal on that. Some small business folks, I remember talking to me about how they're they had something all set up and great and it cost them X amount of dollars. Then Obamacare came along and then it blew everything way out of the water and cost. Mm. So then they had to drop it and do this and fuck with, okay, yeah, I get that. And there's always going to be, there's always going to be that, that thing when you, you put out a broad spectrum policy, someone's going to get the worst of it to some degree. There's always going to be this weird uh, combination of events and uh, effects that, that become unique to only a small portion of folks and I get that and it sucks and I'm you know I don't I don't really know how you run complete governments without that being just the case at times but the bigger underlying issue was that it still all went through insurance the insurance companies and all that nonsense were still at the level where if I go to an ER it's two thousand dollars it's just now I have an insurance plan where I pay 50 bucks instead of two thousand and it's like well why is it still two thousand dollars why is a aluminum built, uh, you know, walker for an elderly person 450 bucks or something ridiculous when it's clearly $25 worth of material add a reasonable amount of profit onto that. Maybe you could charge someone $50 for it or less Yeah. for $600 or something idiotic like that. Or, you know, Oh, you, you, you walked out with a, a couple aspirin. Well, those aspirin cost you, you know, 50 bucks. Like, yeah. Fuck you. You know, I should walk in there for 50 bucks and punch you dead in the fucking face over that. It's just, it's just idiot. It, it and so Obamacare didn't change that. That all still existed under the miasma of all this insurance crap. And, you know, part of it was probably because there was a lot of folks related to the insurance industry, a part of Obama's little cabal. So, you know, everybody was still making money in some way. But that's really one of the biggest problems with our healthcare system is that the the, I refer to it as like the giant 
Christmas tree lights ball of tangled wires. You just can't pull this fucker apart. It's just so insane that to try and unravel it seems like an impossible task. The, the aspect of insurance costs, uh, you could add corporate aspects of big pharma and things like that. And then even all the way down to the individual doctors themselves, it is just such a complex matter. I don't claim to have a solution for it. I just would love to see if possible a, a, a national and a private at the same time, because I always want a private option because I don't believe the state should supply everything for people. And also don't, because at the same time, that means you are absolutely a hundred percent beholden and at the mercy of the state. If, so if, I, I would like people to have the freedom to do some of their own things. It sounds like you need uh, Cuba's healthcare system. <laughs> <laughs> Cuba's? Yeah. Oh man. Well, you know, uh, uh, you can, uh, everybody can be uh, uh, devoid of having what, like penicillin or something, or I don't know, we can all suffer the same. Oh, well, that's the Trademark, isn't it? But um, <laughs> the last time we spoke was um, before all your election shenanigans, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot uh, before. <laughs> and um, I suppose that preamble through Obamacare, uh, which obviously mm. all the people who love heavy metal and wrestling and uh, you know everything that they really want to hear oh they're all about obamacare yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) that's what i love that's what i like about the nature of of this of the podcast like this is that it's completely rambling and all over the place and nobody quite knows what to expect but they will i was thinking about this earlier i was thinking about what are we going to talk about and i was thinking well we could you know the, the 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 stake in the ground the last time was we're waiting for the election and now post election mm-hmm. um you know where what's i don't really know quite now how to process all of the last um i know that it was quite the kind of like psychodrama on this on the side like the side helping of our plate of pandemic and covid came with a, a big helping of american election on the side and then some people just edit as their main meal and now, yeah. that, now that Trump is gone, there's like a Trump-sized hole in the media that it's like people must be losing millions. They don't know what to do with themselves. They don't have the same articles to write. Anything. That's true. That's true. Yeah, there is a lot of people out of work, so to speak, or really scrambling around trying to, to dig up any grave they can find for anything worth talking about. Yeah, it, they, they, they pinned so much of their business model on having an opponent. It's just... I mean, to me, it just shows absolutely how corrupt and stupid our mainstream supposed news are. And it's not even, it's not a pro or anti-Trump. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just simply like, really? This is this is how you think news should operate. This is what you think journalism should consist of. I mean, yeah. I was reading some stuff about how there's literally a class of journalists that all they do is scour people's social media or try to chase them around every new... Uh, outlet like uh, Clubhouse or uh, Telegram or whatever, so that they can see somebody saying something that they think is in a, a, a some sort of capital offense in the world of social justice or the public eye. And then uh, here, here, look at me, look at how I'm a good person, and this person sucks, and you know, therefore, pay me money for it. This yeah. is just pathetic. You know, it is. It's a. It's you know, what is it? Uh, small minds talk about people, and great minds talk about ideas. Yeah. Yeah, we're just talking about people all the time in in an inane, uh, uninteresting and unnecessary ways. Yeah, I think what, but I think the journalism, like I I studied journalism 
uh, for three, four years when I was like maybe 10, 15, no, 15 years ago. And at the time, I would have said there were more uh, young people in my uh, class who were interested in the, the soap opera society than the, than the pol political society. There was no politics mm -hmm. involved. And you can see the difference now in the last 10 years of what's happened through social media. But I think that what's happened in um, journalism is that the adults have kind of left the building in the sense that it's a bit similar to the music industry. It's so impossible to make a living anymore that what supplements people's income from writing is their idealism. So you get mm -hmm. this kind of idea of um, activists uh, try involved in journalism, just churn, you know, just churning out copy and paste stuff, but opinion pieces which are then sold as proper journalism. So they're mm. they're a compensatory um, economic uh, supplement is their idealism, and so you that's why you see all these opinion pieces um, on on either side taking up the space of proper news, but they're all looking for exactly what you say is that gotcha moment, which then can build them a following of their social media so they can have a voice. And unfortunately, that generally tends to reward the most histrionic, the most extreme, the most over the top. So like the, the market kind of force of modern journalism pushes everybody to the side. So like, I mean, more, more, like more people would follow my YouTube channel if I was outrageous, not mm. if I was considered or rational or reasonable. So all the people in the middle just get either fucking shit upon or forced to the side because it's it's just 24 year old idealists uh, ideologues writing uh, like blogs well, i mean what do you think you're going to get when you have what do you think you're going to get when you have an academic situation that is almost entirely comprised of activists and ideologues in the entire teaching staff yeah. and then is comprising the entire uh nearly the entire um uh um uh administrative staff which is also uh, if you can, there are some charts out there. You can track the size of the the rate, the the cost of tuition, the size of uh, students, uh, student um, uh, uh, debt. Yeah, well, not student debt. Um, student uh, 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 participation. That's not the right word, but like how many students are in schools, okay. and the size of administration in in universities and as you're watching these graphs, you see that, you know, that tuition thing goes up, the amount of student body kind of, eh, and then administration is like, woof, you know, so the administration expansion, along with the cost of tuition, almost seems like, uh, uh, you know, cause and effect there, but, uh, which I wouldn't doubt it, but, um, you know, you've got academia filled full of ideologically driven individuals yeah. who will deliberately and 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 outright outright say that they're teaching people to be activists as well as whatever else they are. This is you know a uh, further expansion of the the personal is political, where they want everything to be uh, hinged on a political aspect before you can even enter into the personal. You know, it's like uh, to the point where you almost have people where they want to lead with their their name tag with all the their political uh, views on it before making a decision like whether or not you can even buy something from them interact with them talk to them listen to what they have to say uh it's it's becoming utter far more polarizing but it does so because there's incentive right and so as people create more uh or uh they create more tribe 
and they create tribes that, that give benefit to them in either, let's say, power or money or both or what have you, they want to join up. They want to get on. They want to get in on that gang and, and reap the rewards and, and feel like they're safe within the walls of that, that tribal structure that they're, create, they're creating. And so and then you'll see every now and again, one of them will fall victim to their own tactics. Let's say, you know, cancel culture stuff comes for one of them and then they get hammered. And then all of a sudden they're like, then they want to come out and be like, oh, it's so terrible. I can't believe this is so bad. And you go look back a few years and like, hey, fuck face. You were just all fine with it when it worked out in your own favor. But the reality is what it is, is that you're so stupid and you're, you're so uh, ignorant to your to your own actions and to even taking the time to really investigate why you even operate. What are your first principles? I wouldn't trust you any more as their opposition as I did as for you being their proponent, you know, double fuck you. Yeah. I mean, part of it is really, I think that um, the sort of uh, working class revolution that some of these people wrote about in the middle of the 20th century never really transpired. And so they kind of lost faith in working class people. And mm -hmm. so they kind of left them to their own devices. Now I see, I see an awful lot of the, Ideological. Well, I mean, I would argue that the working class revolution is kind of a front and that the working class revolution is often in a, um, used as, as this, this, this veneer when in reality it is the academia, it is the yeah, intellectual sure. types, it is the, uh, you know, the, the Starbucks latte, champagne drinking, uh, you know, sure. I, 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 Apple product using trust fund kid and Williamsburg or what have you, it's them. And it's always been them. I mean, go look at the, the Russian revolution of, of what, 1917. It's just the same people were at the charge of the whole thing. Well, Although I would say, say that, you know, Lenin was far more of a, what are the, the common parlance, uh, more of a Chad than any like uh, uh, Ash Sarkar or someone like that. I yeah. mean, the guy was into bodybuilding and and all that whole kind of stuff. Uh, I don't think he's nearly as bulky as his statues would suggest, but I bet he had some, <laughs> I bet he had some decent yeah. size on him. But but it's just, and then you know, you pull along the the you tell the working class, you tell the the you know, those that can, can are being put into this concept of being underclass, it's like, oh no, no, we're fighting for you. And then when you get down to it, it's like, yeah, but we're not going to give you any power or position in this. We're not going to necessarily make things better. When has it ever really been better? Sure. What what I mean by what I mean by that though is that I, I, I agree to a point, but what I mean is that like um, if you look at the intense disappointment for some of the um, forces that we're talking about with the fall of the Berlin Wall and essentially the defeat of communism, I think that many um, sort of Western intellectual middle class intellectuals um, felt almost betrayed by the working class. So the working class didn't ride to the rescue on these in these terms, mm. so they recalibrated. Their, um, they really calibrated their class war to include the new emergent middle class. And they just shifted off the, the working class and just sort of went, all right, look, forget that. We'll forget that idea. And now we have this um, middle class that is ripe for a form of identitarianism, is, formed, is ripe for a different kind of, um, a different kind of uh, mobilization in terms of our political um, ideology. And so I think that the, the things that we're talking about, whether it's, you know, this cultural Marxism, all this kind of stuff, it, it, it kind of recalibrated its arguments and shifted off its traditional base. And I think that the whole social media just derangement of the last decade has really mm -hmm. played ultimately 
totally into its hands in, in relation to the things you're talking about, the fact that academia is almost seems to be completely submerged in this kind of thing. Even when I went to college 10, 15 years ago, I found that and like, you know, I remember thinking to myself, fuck, I'd love to punch this Michel Foucault cunt in the head. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't really aware of all of these things yet. And I was like, oh, okay, now I'm aware. I've just been, I've had a, a year of critical theory and all these kind of things. And this is, this is 15 years ago. And it was, of course, all to being distilled through this middle-class intellectual intelligentsia that were reappraising all these things. And then suddenly it just caught on because that's what social media kind of did. Sorry, uh, that was a well, rambling, I mean, a rambling blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's all that rambling. I think there's definitely a lot of substance to what you're saying, especially from your own uh, personal perspective here. And, you know, I wasn't all that familiar with, and, I, and by the way, I don't, I hate the fact that the term cultural Marxism gets linked to, you know, Nazis and whatever and conspiracy theory. I'm like, it is the, one of the better layman terms of trying to describe it, because if you actually understand Marxist thought and the idea of, of going and uh, viewing things from the superstructure to the base instead of base to the superstructure, I mean, it makes sense. It is about culture and the things that come with culture. And so it's a pretty easy way to interpret the, you know, the greater, like the, the longer version of saying it, which you could say be post postmodern neo-Marxism, because it isn't true. It's not traditional Marxist. It's got a ton of postmodernist uh, thought attached to it, but it is a completely, it, it's the same concept of, uh, of the Marxist and Hegelian conflict theory, uh, 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 the dialectic materialism and historical dialect historicism as Hegel would see it, um, with, where everything, all, all things throughout time, all history is progressive, right? It's always, you know, moving towards something, which no, it's not. But, um, you know, I, I'm no fan of Hegel's either or Marx, but um, not to say that everything they said was stupid or bad or whatever. I mean, that would be so such a, a stupid take to take. But uh, um, uh, the thing is, is that it, it, this, this Gramsci slash Frankfurt concept um, which has been allowed to gestate for as long as it has. And that's really what it is, is that, you know, it started off at a certain point with the Frankfurt School, with, you know, the Marcuse's and uh, all them, but eventually it got to Foucault and Derrida and what have you. And, you know, there also, you could add in their perversion of Nietzschean and Heideggerian thought, uh, and even uh, Kierkegaard, uh, or um, uh, Kierkegaard and... Uh, the first guy to really talk about language, I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, uh, long before Derrida was talking about how a cat, you know what a cat is because you know it's not a dog, it's not a tree, it's not a this. Uh, I, I can't remember the philosopher that, that first, uh, Wittgenstein. So, you know, Wittgenstein was long before Ludwig Derrida. You know, you could just go read him instead of trying to deconstruct every, you know, classical novel or whatever to find how it's evil which is a really horrible way to approach the world anyways yeah i mean but, it's an awful lot of that stuff though the, the modern interpretation of all this stuff misses some of the willful playfulness in general sort of like these were it was a bit more hypothetical it wasn't like sort of a religious text as as it seems to be almost yeah as now you know it, it it but it's 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 crazy how it caught on because when i think back to it before like i said before all this stuff became trendy or whatever sort of, you know, hipster Marxism, whatever. 
Um, I remember being taught it in college only 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and everyone just was like, oh, God, this fucking shit again. Because you know, <laughs> well, it's confusing as all yeah. hell. I mean, it's filled full of just like the most nonsensical kind of stuff. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it is, it, it doesn't, you know, when I'll, I'll try to explain this stuff to people and they'll, they'll go, uh, I go, look, if it doesn't make sense, you're right. A lot of it is contradictory, doesn't make sense, isn't grounded in anything in reality. And, and honestly, like some of the postmodern uh, critiques and concepts can be a, an interesting uh, thought concept, like a thought experiment. But, you know, eternal recurrence is a thought experiment to some degree, too. I'm not thinking that I'm going to live this life forever on repeat. Yet to think about if I was to live this life forever on repeat, how would I want it to turn out? That's a great thought experiment. I'm not going to live, I'm not going to literally expect that my life will be that way, but okay, you know, it's useful to examine things and the idea of people using whatever avenues of, um, of com community interaction or personal interaction as plays in power. Some people do, you know, do things that way. I mean, you could even argue that like, uh, like those pickup artist types with their, their, um, delving into psychology, evolutionary biology, uh, uh, ticks, uh, physical uh, or um, uh, unsaid uh, physical cues and contacts and, you know, all these different things and using them just to like get pussy. I mean, yeah, that was a, a something that you could take and use it for a useful reason to instead, you know, you used it into your way of, of playing power because you felt like you didn't have power to achieve the things that you wanted before. And, and, Ultimately, like you, you view, if you start viewing things all through a perspective of power, I mean, it just it poisons the whole way of, of operating in the world. You know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't ever really think about who's got power. You know, when I'm in Dublin and I'm going to bars that you're taking me to, and we're seeing the people, I'm not like, oh, well, Alan's in power now. It's like, I, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm a part of this process. I'm here. I'm in this moment. I am, I am, I have showed up. To open myself to the experiences with with my friend and who wants to show me like I don't need to turn it into this this weird academic spiral into over analyzing the entirety of of every interaction that we have. Yeah, it's, I mean that's one of the most poisonous things about it is that it teaches you to analyze every social interaction as such, even um, when it's the most benign thing that you can imagine. But if you, I mean, it's it must be maddening to view the world only through the lens of antagonism. Um, yeah, and now now add that to very, social media. Yeah. Now add that to social media very and have powerful. this stuff permeating, not even through social media elements where someone behind the screen thinks in this way. And so they're generating content and things following in this kind of uh, footstep, let alone if you, the other person on the other side of the screen have this kind of concept. So you view everything you view that way. And now you're being, you're being, you're having, Jungian persona pumped into your face mm. all day long yeah. and you're addicted to it yeah. because it, it lights up all those things in your brain that, that, uh, that they want it to. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's hardly surprising that after a year of this, whatever this is, social experiment, whether you want to consider it that or not, um, that pe people are be being driven mad. They're, they're, they're starting to go mad. I mean, spend all, spending all of this time in front of the screen, in front of all of these ideas, and these are the only things that can give you, you know, validation. Um, it's hardly yeah. surprising that we've sort of, we're falling 
off with you know driven off some kind of cliff when it comes to yeah it's um, like people in a state of mania yeah it's it's like a collective psychosis and it's it's being forced upon us because people don't have any outlet to human and so yes but if well, and Nietzsche Nietzsche already I'm always going to go back to Nietzsche he talked about this you know hundreds of years ago he, you know uh, in in a group uh, uh, one man loses his mind and exchanges it for another uh, you know he talked well even uh, John Stuart Mill, who we talked about earlier, talks about the issue of the group psychosis. And then, you know, you go all the way to Bernays and he goes, well, how do I how do I use this to my advantage? So, uh, you know, and even Walter Littman in Public Opinion talks a bit about, uh, you know, group psychology and, and how to how to structure things to get all, everybody on the same board. So, well, I, I will say this about this last year is that um, before this year, the people who I would have um, fought tooth and nail and argued with over the barricades of some of my own um, politics and my own idealism, I've, I've kind of thought about the fact that everybody has become maddened and deranged and isolated and alienated. And so I've actually felt, oddly enough, closer, if, if not in their arguments, to their frame of mind sometimes in the last year because I think everyone has been pushed to the absolute limit so it's like I've almost given small little moral free or not moral but emotional free passes to mm -hmm. people some of the time who would have been two years ago people I would have fought tooth and nail about things because I, th I, I do feel a kind of a sort of emotional kinship with many people who are I can see are have been driven mad by the situation and who wouldn't if you were already in the trenches, who went, who wouldn't have dug in further in the last year with nobody else to analyze these things with, talk with, be human with, interact with? It's only inevitable that as a human, as an experiment, we were going to go more insane. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of really withdrawn from fighting with as many people, or not fighting is not the right word, but maybe even. Having contention and, and yeah. uh, you know, even debate. Uh, yeah, let's I have more. Let me say this. I have more understanding of the people who disagree with me because of the process mm. of the last year than I did two years ago. I can I can uh, I can relate to that. And that, you know, I have a, actually a, a bit of a contentious nature to myself, mm. uh, if, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, one of my one of my first principles is trying to get to the closest understanding of, of something, you know, some sort of objective place with it to, to just to understand what we can know best. Right. You know, I, I being wrong doesn't bother me because if, if I'm wrong, then that means then there's a way to still find out how to be right. And as we can move towards having a better orientation in the world, uh, the better off I'm going to be, the better I can be at making better choices and I can be better at helping other people to have better choices. Yeah. Um, but I see, you know, I, I would have a conversation with someone and it would have to be about politics because everybody wants to talk about it. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, everybody, and it's, everybody is a fucking analyst now. Everyone. And, and it's and like you said, it's maddening. And I like I said to you earlier, it's maddening to me because I'm talking to some of these people and I'm just thinking you're so ignorant. You have so little understanding of how any of this actually works that we really can't even have a, a debate about something because what I'm talking about is is is, is here at the roots and the fundamental and, and, and is dealing with things that throughout history 
and on a line that you can follow through and you're up here just regurgitating the same stuff that your your media and your social media and your other friends and and you know the group think it, that's running around in this mass psychosis is telling you and you're picking your little fucking sides and thinking that you actually understand the way that that uh western politics works and you're so utterly wrong but yet i had to sit back at some point and just go okay i understand why you think the way you do yeah i get it I, for me to try and explain to you right now why you are so utterly incorrect and you know so little would would be akin to trying to tear somebody's understanding of why water is wet and you can breathe air away from them it feels like that they're this is what they've substituted for their their meaning making in the world as it would relate to politics and so for them it's like no i've chosen that these things are what's going to inform me and so they have to be correct because if they're incorrect holy shit how much is that how much do i really know and and the idea of people losing their bearing on understanding of something especially as as deeply personal and and polarizing as politics have become uh especially in the west is is almost akin to tearing away religion or like first principles to them they 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 feel like they have, they know enough to orient themselves in the world and when you pull away something that destroys that orient they say no 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 you're completely you thought you're facing north and you're facing south the whole time it people just they they don't want it it's it's discombobulating it is it's it's it it really fucks people's heads up and is there we should leave the end of part 1 on fucking people's heads up you're going to get part two next time. All right. Agitators Anonymous. The end of episode one with Josh Barnett. Metal never bends. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.